Good morning, Westmead. It's good to gather again to lift our voices, uh, to sing praise to the Lord. Uh, I know as awkward as the whole thing feels, it feels even more awkward. But I want to encourage you as families to lift your voice and let's bless the Lord Jesus together. As we begin uh, reading from the book of Hebrews chapter 9, uh, verse number 11. It says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Let's bless the Lord together. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. None else could heal all our souls diseases no not one no not one jesus knows all about our struggles he will guide till the day is done there's not a friend like the lowly jesus no not one no Like him is so high and holy. No, not one, no, not one. And yet, no friend is so meek and lowly. No, not one, no, not one. Jesus knows all about our struggles, and he will guide till. Like the lonely Jesus 
sing it again, church. Jesus knows all about our struggles. He will guide till the day is done. There's not a friend like the lonely Jesus. No, not Jesus Christ, our hope. He's our hope in life and death, and we bless you, Lord, together. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence? That our souls to Him belong, who holds our days within His hand. What comes apart from His command, and what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. Oh, sing. Our hope springs eternal. Oh, sing hallelujah. Now and ever we confess Christ our hope in life and death. What truth can calm the troubled soul? God is good, God is good, where is His grace and goodness known? In our great Redeemer's blood, who holds our faith when fears arise, who stands above the stormy trial, who sends the waves that bring us nigh unto the shore the rock of Christ will sing hallelujah our hope springs eternal will sing hallelujah now and ever we confess Christ our hope in life and death. Unto the grave, what shall we sing? Christ, He lives. Christ, He lives. And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with Him There we will rise to meet the Lord The sin and death will be destroyed And we will feast in endless joy When Christ is ours forevermore We'll sing 
our hope springs eternal. Oh, sing hallelujah, now and ever we confess Christ our hope and life and death. Oh, sing hallelujah, our hope springs eternal. Oh, sing Christ, our hope and life and death, now and ever we confess. Christ, our hope and life and death. Amen. Thank you, church. Good morning, church family. I'm glad you decided to be with us today as we dive into God's Word together. Thank you for taking time to be with us this morning. This morning, what we're going to be talking about is the end is near. Now, I've had questions, you know, since this coronavirus thing started, people have asked, hey, is is, is this the end of the times? Is this a sign of the end of the times? And I suppose it's a good question. I mean, we can't help but think about it. And for a much more detailed explanation, I encourage you to go check out our very own evangelist, Jay Keen's video. It's on YouTube. Uh, He kind of breaks it down and dives in uh, and kind of unpacks it a whole lot more um, in detail. So I encourage you to check that out. But for me, as we answer this question in terms of is the coronavirus a sign of the end of the times? Yes and no, realistically. Yes, it's a sign that we live in a fallen world and we are uh, every day that occurs, we're getting closer and closer to the return of Jesus. But no, our end times didn't start because of this coronavirus. The Bible, uh, to put it in simple terms, the Bible points to two distinct events in human history. Um, and then that's it. The first event it points to is the coming Messiah, which we see all throughout the Old Testament. And we see the fulfillment of that uh, in Jesus being here. Uh, and then the second thing is when Christ returns. Uh, in Hebrews, uh, it actually talks about it this way. In Hebrews 1, chapter 1, verse 2, it says, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. So we know that there are two events in history that points to, uh, that we know that the end is near. Number one has already happened. So literally when Jesus ascended into heaven, that began, began the end days. Uh, and as we look at our passage of scripture today, you're going to see that they too were looking at these, these things. The end is near. You know, the phrase, the end is near, is not always a bad thing. Uh, this morning when I was uh, at home, I saw a, a guy running in my neighborhood. And uh, he was doing really well. He is doing a lot better than I possibly could. Uh, but you could just tell in the stature of how he was running um, that he was he was about done. And 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 I thought about this phrase when I saw him, and I thought, you know what? It would probably of great be of great encouragement to him if I walked out while he's running in my cul-de-sac and said, "Hey, man, the end is near." He'd probably be like, "Thank goodness," you know. So the end is, is near is not always a bad phrase. It's not always a negative phrase. And today, I don't want us to to talk as we talk about the end is near. I don't want us to talk about end times prophecy per se, uh, but I want us to kind of look at it from a different perspective. Uh, when we talk about the end of, is near, I want us to look at it as an encouraging thing. Yes, one day the end of time as we know it uh, will come 
and Jesus will come back and it will be a glorious time for his church. Uh, but in the meantime, there's a lot of things that we look at and say, hey man, the end is near and Rick recognized, man, that's a good thing. Rick, right now, being in the middle of this, this coronavirus and this um, shelter-at-home stuff, uh, I want us to kind of look for the fact that, hey, church, let me encourage you with this. The end is near. Now, we still don't know when all of this is going to happen, when they lift these restrictions and life can start progressively moving back towards something we're more familiar with and accustomed to. Uh, so I'm not here to predict anything, uh, whether it's with the coronavirus or the end of the world. Um, but I want us to be encouraged that that the end is near. And again, I don't want us to focus on end time prophecy. I want us to focus on the end of kind of this stage and where we're at and kind of how we know that the end is coming because we're seeing states around us. We see things start um, easing up a little bit, kind of relieving some of this tension. Uh, we still need to be in prayer, church, for our, for our nation, for our world, uh, for our state, and for its leaders. Uh, but at the same time, we're starting to see some glimpses that we might be coming out of this thing. We don't want to get too far ahead, but we can always get excited about what is coming. And, and, and church, this morning as we look at God's word, I want us to be reminded of who we are as the church and to be reminded of, of who we are going to be um, when this is lifted, when we take the step forward. You know, we're going to be at this new beginning stage as a church. We're not resetting, um, but this new beginning uh, of ministry and this opportunity that we're going to have uh, here in Decatur to minister to our county and to the people around us. So this morning, uh, as we look at God's word, I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be encouraged because the author of the text that we're looking at is writing to his audience to encourage them because they were facing some challenging things. Uh, so I invite you uh, to turn in your Bibles to First Peter. First Peter. First Peter is towards the back of the Bible. It's also towards the back of the New Testament, ironically. Sarcasm. Um, it's, it's near, near the back. Uh, if you get to second Peter, you're really close. It's right in front of that. Um, but go to first Peter chapter four. And while you're turning there, I'll just give you a little bit of a glimpse. Obviously, this is a letter written by Peter to the early church. Um, and as they receive this letter, what's kind of taking place is we're seeing persecution ramp up uh, for believers in Christ. We're actually going to talk a little bit more about that tonight in our small group uh, that I encourage you to be a part of. But, but in this context, the church is already being persecuted for being believers in Jesus Christ. Peter was aware of this, so he wrote this letter to them to encourage them. Uh, in his second letter, he, he kind of points them to the day that is approaching, but in this letter, he's just writing them to encourage them because they are being persecuted. They are being bullied, they are being killed, they are being imprisoned. They are suffering because of their faith in Jesus. Now, um, given the time frame, which we'll dive into in just a little bit, of this text, we understand that there were probably some contemporaries in the church at this time that remember Jesus, that maybe, if had, maybe had even been present in some of Jesus' teachings. Maybe they knew somebody, maybe they, their parents uh, were changed because of Jesus's preaching or his miracles. We don't know, um, but we know that in this context, people remembered Jesus not because of necessarily what has been told to them, but maybe many of them had lived it. Um, Peter is encouraging them, uh, and in this text, um, he's reminding them of the bigger picture. In this letter, he is encouraging them that there is a better day that is to come. 
that the world that they're facing, the world we're facing right now is not the world that God intends for it to be, especially when he comes and makes all things new. And he actually says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13, he says to the church, rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. It's an encouraging letter written by Peter who walked with Jesus to the church who was facing some very difficult times. Now, church, I'm just going to be transparent with you. We, Westmead, are not dealing with the same level uh, of atrocities as this church was. It's easy for us to look back and say, oh, woe is me. We're sheltered at home. We can't meet. We're, we're unable to get out. And these are, these are hard things that we're having to adjust and learn how to, but it's nothing in comparison to what the church is going through at the time that Peter is writing this letter to the church. So I invite you to look in 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be looking at some verses today uh, as, we be, as we are encouraged by this. Look at this beginning in verse 7. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 7. This is what Peter writes. He says, the end of all things is near. See? Therefore... Be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. He continues on to encourage the church, but but I just want to focus on these three verses there this morning, church, as we look at the end is near Um, because the end of near is, is, is good news. Uh, again, we're looking at it in the context that the end of this coronavirus, the end of this isolation is near and we're going to start moving and transitioning, hopefully not back to where we were, because during this time, I think some things have been exploited in our lives that we don't need to go back to where they were. Um, but we are moving closer to operating in a more normal um, context. Um, So I want us to be encouraged by this, and I want us to look at this passage of Scripture. In these three verses, there are three elements that Peter points the early church to. And he's pointing to them uh, and encouraging them to practice them. So let's just dive into the Scripture and kind of unpack it and walk through it. But the first thing I want us to see that, that Peter is encouraging the church to actively be a participant in is prayer. Prayer. Look in verse 7. He says, the end of all things is near. Now, before we get to the prayer part, I just want to want to pause right here because it, by the time the church is receiving this letter, it's been about 30 years since Jesus has been crucified and ascended into heaven. Crucified, resurrected, and ascended. It's been about 30 years since then. And I'm sure, like us, this this group of people is probably sitting there and, and, it, and it feels like forever since we've had it the way we've wanted. Again, probably there are some people still in the church that were contemporaries that, that had a chance to see Jesus. Maybe some of them actually knew Jesus and, and they're sitting there saying, you know what? Uh, maybe some of them were with the crowds that day that saw Jesus ascend into heaven. Um, but I'm sure all of them are familiar with the story of Christ and, and Peter himself. We know Peter was there. And he's encouraging their, them, hey guys, the end of all things is near. When, when we hear the end of all things, when we read that text, we're, we're thinking, well, the end of the world is near. Man, think about it from their perspective. A church who's under heavy persecution. That's an encouraging word to them because what they're hearing is, man, the end of our suffering is near. The end of our persecution is near. The end of all these hardships that we're facing is near. 
And it's going to get back to the way it was before when we were with Jesus or when we, we get a chance to be with Jesus like these, at least Peter as he's telling us about it. We look at this in terms of Jesus. For them, it's been 30 years. For us, it's been a couple of thousand years. And we're not contemporaries. We're not saying, well, I remember back in the day when Jesus did this miracle. We weren't there for that. But at the same time, and there are people in our church even now facing very difficult things, and they ask the same question, when is all this going to end? Not necessarily the end of of our lives or the end of, but just when is all this pain and suffering going to end? For the idea for Peter to encourage them by saying the end of all things is near, it's an encouragement to us too, church, saying that the suffering of this present world is not meant to last forever. One day the end of this world will be here and all things will be made new, holy and beautiful in the presence of our King. So be encouraged by that. And, and what he takes in, I don't want to get ahead of myself, so let's, let's just keep going. It says the end of all things is near, but then he uses the word, the phrase, therefore. I love the word therefore. We've spent a lot of time talking about therefore. But look at how it's used here. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind. Therefore is a transitional term here that Peter is using, insinuating as kind of a command, but it's an encouraging command to not go do this. It's like, man, y'all need to go do this. Hey, the end of all things is near. And because of this, he's pointing to the future. Therefore, go and do this. Go and be this, church. This transitional word, this therefore that he's putting into is creating a sense of urgency. When we think the end of all things is near, when it's almost up, you know, when you think about when somebody says that to you, hey, time's almost up, uh, you either complete the task or if you've completed the task, you just kind of sit and wait. Well, there's a difference between waiting and loitering and what Peter is trying to point them to. He's trying to say, hey, the end of all things is near, so there's a few things you need to get to work on while you wait. Don't just sit and loiter, which basically means just sit around with nothing to accomplish and no goal or no purpose. But while you're waiting, be active in your waiting by doing things that God himself has called us to do. There's a sense of urgency here by the phrase, the end of all things is near. As Brother Jay points out in his video, it literally, the end of the world could be any second now. Because the Messiah has come and now we're waiting for the next the next step, uh, and, and it could literally happen in seconds. And if we talk about the fact that the end of all things could be seconds away, my question is, are you ready for that? And if your answer is, yes, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. Uh, I've, I've received the gift of salvation by the offer of the, the, the blood of Jesus covers my sin, the grace that comes with that. Well, are your loved ones, the people that matter most, the people in your life, are they ready because of your testimony? There's an urgency with that phrase, the end of all things is near. And the urgency is kind of um, exp- uh, kind of highlighted with Peter's next words when he says, therefore, go and do this. You need to be doing something actively, not just sitting around. Peter was commanding the church that while we are in the process of waiting for all these things, all this hurt and pain and chaos and all the the suffering that comes with this world while we're waiting for it to end we're not just sitting around but we're doing something he's pointing to the fact that if god were to come back in the next 10 seconds he would find us faithful doing and living out the commands that he left for us to do 
And that's what he gets to in this verse. And he talks about, you may pray. Now, how does he say we are to pray? Well, he uses two phrases here. He uses two words uh, in verse 7. He says, therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Now, it doesn't exactly, he doesn't spell out how we should be praying. But the intentionality here, if you put it in the context of this verse and the verses that follow, is that we should be interceding on each other's behalf. We should be praying together and we should be praying for one another. And the first way he says that we should be preparing to pray is to be alert. To be alert. When we look at this, the, my, my translation uses the word uh, alert, but some of your translations may use a different word, uh, the self-conscious, some of these things self-controlled but when we use the word alert when he's talking about therefore be alert he's talking about be aware of what's going on around you be when it talks about if your translation uses the word self-control what he's talking about is don't let the world influence you be fully aware of what's going on in the world and that you can maintain your dignity you can maintain your testimony and your witness and your character as you follow christ it's a compliment to, to what he says next when he says be alert, but then he also says be sober-minded. Other translations have pointed to this same sober-minded phrase as meaning disciplined. Being disciplined. And when we talk about being disciplined, what Peter is pointing to here when he tells the people to be disciplined, to be sober-minded in their prayer life, is what he's pointing to is that we understand and know God's word as the only truth that we are to stand and build our lives on. So if we understand God's word, that the act of being disciplined is means we're applying God's word to our lives. So what he's talking about here in our approach to prayer and how we pray for one another is that we should be uh, alert and sober-minded. We should be aware and disciplined in how we practically live out the, the calling of prayer for one another, the discipline of prayer. That we should know what's going on around us, that we should be able to navigate our own lives in the context of what's going on around us, that we're not influenced by it, and we're disciplined enough to not only know God's word in that context, but to live it out and apply it in our lives so that others may see the truth of Jesus lived out in us. This is how we're called to pray, to pray for one another. Uh, Paul, Peter uses the same exact two-worded phrases in the next chapter in first peter chapter 5 verses 8 and 9 he writes this he says be alert and of sober mind now he's not talking about prayer he's talking about just in the, the how you discipline your life be alert and of sober mind your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour resist him standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Again, Peter is pointing to the fact that we are to be aware and we are to be disciplined as we be the church. And church, one of the greatest ways, and again, this is a letter written for encouragement. He's encouraging them on what they need to be doing while they're waiting um, again, not just sitting around, but actively doing. He's calling them to practice one of the greatest disciplines we have afforded to us by Jesus, and that is prayer, to pray for one another. So when he's talking about being alert and sober-minded, uh, he's, he's challenging the individual believer to live their life that way, but also to practice that in their prayer life, but to be praying that for others as well. 
Church, during this time, we've been separated. We've been sheltered at home. We've been looking at each other through Zoom meetings and and various forms of other communication. But we still have the privilege of praying for one another and praying together. That we can pray for everyone around us to be aware of what's going on. That we're we're smart enough to practice these things to to stay healthy and to keep other people healthy. But also that we are sober-minded. That we practice the discipline that comes with knowing Christ Jesus is Lord. That we're living out the biblical truths in our lives. And then in doing so, we pray for our church and, and not just, I'm not, I'm not talking about a building, I'm not talking about a campus, I'm talking about the people that we too would pray for them to be aware and disciplined so that we are moving forward and growing together while this we cannot be together. So the first thing Peter is pointing the church to and the way he is trying to encourage them is in prayer. What's the second thing? Look in verse 8. He says, above all, love each other deeply. So the first thing Paul is encouraging the church to do as the end is near is to pray for one another. The second thing he's encouraging the church to do is to love each other. He says in verse 8, he starts off with above all. I don't think he's insinuating, hey, prayer is important, but above that, do love. I think what he's saying in terms of how we demonstrate that. That we are called to prayer to keep open channel of communication between us and God open so that we not only speak to God, but more importantly, we hear from God and we go to God on behalf of our brothers and sisters in Christ, lifting them up so that they would be uh, mindful and aware to experience the goodness of God and to recognize his presence in their lives daily. But then that's conversation between us and God. The next thing he says, love each other deeply. In your relationship with you and God, pray. And pray for those that are around you. But how that spills over into how you treat others around you is to love each other deeply. He starts with the greatest thing we can do for each other, which is pray. And then he takes it to the next step of how we encourage one another and how we associate with one another as a church by loving one another deeply. Peter's just reflecting the message of Jesus in this one verse. He's not trying to rewrite anything. He's not trying to recreate the wheel. He's just pointing to what Jesus has already taught on how we're called to love one another, which should ask the question in your mind, well, what did Jesus teach about us and our ability to love one another? What did Jesus say the second greatest commandment was? Love your neighbor as yourself. In the upper room, Jesus gave his disciples a new command. Remember, a new command I give you. And what was that new command? That they should love each other as Christ had loved them. Peter is just reflecting the teachings of Jesus already when he says, above all, love each other deeply. When we talk about love each other deeply, it is so easy, especially in this culture that we're in, to be like, yeah, okay, I love you, love you too. Most of the time we say, I love you just to try to get to, because we want to hear somebody say it back. The purpose of telling someone you love them is so that they would know they are loved. But do we love deeply? Do we love deeply in the the members of our church? Do we love deeply the members of the bodies of Christ? Maybe they go to another church. Maybe they're of a different denomination, but they're a believer in Jesus Christ. We are called to encourage the church and be the church by loving one another deeply. How we serve our church, the greatest way we can serve our church is prayer. But when we're together or when we're not, one of the greatest ways, the step two of the greatest way we can serve our church is by how we love 
our church family. And Westmead, the truth is this. The evidence of the love that we share by showing one another, not just saying it, but by showing one another we love them, will either attract or repel the lost. If we, the church, love one another exceedingly well as Christ loves us, then people who have never experienced the love of Christ will be captivated and curious of why do you care about each other like that? And it's an open door for us to communicate to them, perhaps for the first time, the love of Christ and his love for them. How we love one another speaks volumes of our testimony in Jesus Christ. But, but look what else he says. He doesn't just say, above all, love each other deeply. He says, because love covers over a multitude of sins. You know, when we read this verse, we can't forget who the author is. Who's the author? Peter. You know, Peter not only had a front row seat to Jesus' teaching on love and how to love one another, and, and not just his hearing his teaching, but seeing Jesus demonstrate it and do it and live it out, he also completely understood by watching Jesus practice this idea that because love covers over a multitude of sins. If you remember in, in John chapter 21, uh, after Jesus had, had resurrected and come back from the grave, he and Peter had a conversation. Because see, right before Jesus was crucified, Peter denied knowing Jesus three times. Denied him. And Jesus had even told Peter, Peter, man, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And what did he say? Absolutely not, Jesus. All these other guys will sell you out and bail on you, but not me. You can count on me. And what did he do? He didn't count on him to do exactly what Jesus told him he was going to do. He denied Jesus three times. And in John chapter 21, Jesus and Peter kind of have this moment uh, by a campfire. uh, And Jesus restores him. But he restores him in the context of love. It very easily could have been Jesus been like, Peter, what are you doing here? You still denying me? Well, you denied me three times. Why are you following me now? But Jesus wasn't like that. Why? Because love covers over a multitude of sins. And he restored Peter by loving Peter even greater than the hurt that Peter gave him through denying him. Church, we are encouraged to love one another. And we encourage each other by loving one another. This is not just referring to telling people we love them. It's showing people we love them. There's been some really cool stories that have come out of this shelter-at-home time of how our church has continued to be the church. Uh, And I'm not going to get into them. I'm not going to list specific stories. But there have been a number of stories uh, of what church families have done to show the love of Christ to other church families. And it's just been beautiful. When all this ends and we're able to be back together again, will we also continue to be a church that goes out of our way not to just give lip service to tell someone we love them but will we be the church that goes out of our way to show someone the love of christ by how we treat them and by how we overlook even a multitude of sins so that they would know the love of christ so we're being encouraged by peter and shown uh, to pray for each other to love one another But there's a third thing that that Peter is pointing to, that how we can encourage and serve our church family. It's right here in verse 9. He says, offer hospitality to one another without 
grumbling. Now, if you're just doing a checklist, prayer, check. Love one another, check. You know, the next thing in the list you could think of in terms of spiritual disciplines, man, you could put fasting. You could put um, true acts of service, selflessness, self-denial. You could come up with a whole lot of lists. I don't know how many people would put hospitality third on that list. Check. Hospitality? I mean, if Peter's encouraging the church to do or be something, prayer, love one another, hospitality? Like, how is that number three on the list? Well, Peter knew something very real because he has already experienced it and how the church has practiced hospitality. If you go back and you read Acts, as we've been walking through Acts as a church, you go back at the times in Acts where we're seeing the life of Peter on display. There were times where Peter, in his missionary travels, as he was going around and proclaiming the truth about Jesus, the only way those missionary uh, treks and journeys were continuing was because people were practicing hospitality to him. Remember, he stayed at Simon the Tanner's house uh, on one of his journeys, and he kind of set up shop there with him. And through that, God opened his mind even more to what the ministry that God had called him to. If you go and look at Paul and how Paul, on his missionary journeys, um, that there were a number of believers that it said they, they would open their home to him and he stayed with them or he stayed there or they provided a place to say hospitality church is the beautiful way of which we demonstrate the love of Christ. Hospitality opens up our ability to practice generosity and love. And when you take the word, the, the idea of generosity and love and you put them together, you know what you come up with? Grace. When generosity and love are practiced in the same context, you get a glimpse of grace in that. Peter knew all too well the importance of offering hospitality. Peter knew that the church could not survive if we're only going to practice hospitality with, with the people that were close to us. We, we, we're not going to survive if we only practice hospitality, Christ-centered hospitality, with people who look just like us. Or the people that we like, the people we want to be around. Peter knew that it was a much bigger picture in order to build the kingdom of God to offer hospitality by serving one another, by loving one another, through offering hospitality so that they would see the purpose of Jesus lived out in how we treat them. Matter of fact, many of you who are, who are dealing with shelter-at-home situations with your, with your children or your family at home, this in and of itself offering hospitality might have been a challenge to practice even in your own house during this time where you love your family, but good grief, let's, let's just get a break from each other for a little bit. Um, I, 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 don't, I don't feel that way for the record, if my wife is watching. Anyway, uh, but when we look at this idea of offering hospitality, we see that Peter is proclaiming the truth that it's not just something that we are to practice in the context of just our church family, but we should be open to practicing hospitalities even to strangers. Matter of fact, the, the term that's used here in offering hospitality is pointing more to that, that philos love, that brotherly love, but it's an insinuation of entertaining strangers. Uh, you, the writer of Hebrews talks about that in Hebrews chapter 13, where it says, be, be mindful uh, in how you offer hospitality, for in doing so, some have even entertained angels without even knowing it. Um, if you go back to, if you look at that text and look in the Old Testament, when Abraham, uh, there were three strangers, wanderers that wandered up. And what did Abraham do? He offered them hospitality. He offered them a meal. And it turned out they were men of God. 
that prophesied that within a year, uh, Abraham's wife, Sarai, would have a child, and it came to pass. Had he ignored the privilege of serving them through offering hospitality, he would have missed out on that blessing. So this idea of offering hospitality is, is all throughout Scripture as a model for us to demonstrate. But it, it's, as we offer hospitality in a Christ-centered way, as we demonstrate the love of Christ by loving one another, which we're only going to do if we're earnestly praying for one another, then it's going to be lived out and it's going to be on full display when we offer hospitality to those who come here, whether it is our people or whether it is total strangers, whether they look like us or whether they don't. We're called to offer hospitality. It's what the church is meant to do. And in doing so, we're going to promote the love of Christ to those who know Jesus or introduce the love of Christ to those who don't when we offer hospitality in the context of what Jesus has called us to do. Now, it doesn't just say in verse 9, offer hospitality. No, what does it say? It says, offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Offer hospitality without grumbling. You know, true hospitality, when we really offer hospitality, it's, it's more of an overflow of our heart. I would imagine when he's talking about do it without grumbling is, is at some point in time, the way we serve others, the way we offer hospitality, when it becomes more of an obligation than a joyous overflow, I can imagine the obligation side, we can start grumbling about it. When we do it because we feel like we have to, not because we really want to. And that's what Peter is, that's what God tells us in his word through Peter's writings. Offer hospitality to one another, but do it without grumbling. In other words, do it with grace. Do it with joy. Do it from the overflow of Christ so alive in your life that other people are experiencing the goodness of God through your offer of hospitality. Why? Because this is exactly what won our freedom from sin. It wasn't some glorified hospitality. It is so much more than that. So please don't think I'm cheapening the cross, that I'm cheapening our gift of salvation. But what is hospitality really? It's, it's our ability to afford something to someone else that they cannot afford for themselves. That's exactly what God did to a, for us through Jesus on the cross in the empty tomb. That we could not afford our own forgiveness. We could not re- afford our own redemption. We could not afford our own separation of sin because we were covered in it. But yet God because of his great love for us, demonstrated the greatest love we'll ever know through this by by sending his son to live a perfect life, to willingly lay down his life on the cross so that he could be a ransom for our sins, that the blood of Jesus takes away the sins of the world so that through Jesus, by accepting what Jesus has done and acknowledging him being a perfect son of God, willingly laid down his life and raised again on the third day, taking our place, This is how we know the love of God when we accept the truth that comes through knowing Jesus as Lord and Savior. It's the greatest thing we couldn't afford ourselves of all time. But it's what God demonstrated and showed us so that we might know love from the author of it himself. It's not grumbling. It's a privilege to serve and love one another. So as we look at these three verses, church, what does this mean for us? 
If we took it on the big scale, absolutely. Obviously, the fact that you're watching this tells me that Jesus still hasn't come back. And by the way, if he has, I really encourage you to turn to Jesus. But if, there's a, if he hasn't, and we're all still waiting on his return, we don't just wait uh, lazily. We wait doing, being active in what God has called us to in his word through prayer, through loving one another, and through offering hospitality. In the context of where we are with this COVID-19 stuff and the fact that we believe, we hope, that we're getting closer to it kind of ramping down so that we can start getting back to a, a, a normalcy in our life routines, which includes our ability to be at church, we are going to have a great new opportunity to minister to people in ways we never have before. And we're going to have to practice things a little bit differently. This past Wednesday, when we talked about the plan that's going to be in place, uh, some procedures and things that are going to be expected of us when we come back so that we can worship together, but also be mindful of the needs of those around us. It's going to take people doing these same three things and living them out with excellence so that our church can minister to those effectively. Number one, we should be in prayer for one another during this time of separation. Um, We miss one another, but that doesn't change the fact that even though I haven't seen somebody in six or seven weeks, doesn't mean I can't pray for them. Let me ask you this. I wrote a list down here. Let me ask you this because you're like, man, I I pray for my church all the time. Well, Well, do we get specific? Have you prayed for Sunday school teachers? Not just your Sunday school teacher. Have you prayed for Sunday school teachers? Have you prayed for deacons? Who even during this time of isolation are still steadily, or I hope that at least they are trying to reach out and connect with our church family and meeting needs. Are you praying for the students whose world is upside down, not being in school, and many of them missing out on some really great opportunities they've been working hard to accomplish? Are you praying for the children who maybe don't understand what's going on? Are you praying for our senior adults? Many of whom might be considered high risk because of this virus going around. Are you praying for our cleaning staff that they don't get discouraged and continue to prepare this place for the day that we come back together are you praying for the sick in our church church we have a lot of family members struggling with real life illnesses many people in our church are dealing with cancer but we have people dealing with other serious illnesses that are very debilitating right now. Are you praying for those people? Every Wednesday, Miss Jenny emails out uh, a copy of the prayer list. Use it. Pray through those names. Lift those people up. Are you praying for the staff? Are you praying for the people uh, that on a normal Sunday or Wednesday are the ones that are making things happen behind closed doors? When we say we pray for our church, are we truly praying for the people in our church as Peter is calling us to pray that we are practicing awareness and discipline in how we live, but we're practicing that in our prayer life and praying that in the lives of our church members? Are we praying it for other churches? Are we praying it for churches in our city and praying for churches in our state and in our nation and in our world who are dealing and trying to answer the same questions we are? Are we praying for the church? We need to continue to pray during this time. Second thing, we should be demonstrating love for one another. How are you showing love during this time? How are you showing love at this time? Many of us, it's real easy, man, to sit back and think, well, what have people done for me? That is the wrong question to ask. 
The question we should be asking as believers, as as followers of Jesus, is what have I done for someone else? How have I shown love to someone else? I don't know if my neighbor is saved, so what am I doing to open the door for the gospel? But at the same time, for the person that I know is a believer in Christ, what am I doing to encourage them by showing love to them? You can do this a number of ways, church. Many of you have already done it. But maybe you haven't done it yet. Maybe you've still just been so isolated and worried about yourself that you've forgotten that our privilege to love one another. You can make a phone call. You can write a letter. You can send a text. You can do something to reach out to just remind somebody of the love of Christ by how you love them and treat them. It's a whole lot easier for us to sit around and talk about how we miss everyone than it is to be intentional to show love to them. But church, we're not called to sit around and just miss everybody. We're called to do something about it. We're not just loitering, we're actively waiting and doing something while we wait. And the third thing is this, we should be prepared to offer hospitality. You know, as we talk about being prepared for the end of this shelter at home, for this end of this stage to end, to take that next step, when we talk about the whenever it will be for the privilege of us to come back together in this place, we're going to need people who are willing to offer hospitality. We talked about it this past Wednesday night. We're going to need volunteers who will willingly say, hey, you know what? Three services whenever we meet back together, 8, 9, 30, 11 o'clock, which means we won't be done till 12. We need people to be here around 7.30 that first Sunday so we can assign the tasks that we need in order to provide a healthy and safe environment for our church family. That is a hospitality service. That is the ministry of hospitality, doing whatever it takes for others to receive and be a benefactor of the love of Christ. This is how we offer personality, uh, uh, offer hospitality, excuse me. It's easy for us to sit back and be like, hey, our church has a plan and I'm excited that we have a plan. We have an amazing staff that's been working hard and sharing ideas and doing the research to come up with the plan that we have. But let me ask you a question. What's your plan to offer hospitality once we start meeting again. And I remind you, when we start meeting again, we're just going to meet for worship. We're not going to have things like Sunday school and all the other things. So what's your plan to offer hospitality to your church, to show them by actively demonstrating the love of Christ? What's your plan? It shouldn't just be a, our plan. Each individual member needs to have a plan of how we're going to show love to the body of Christ and to the strangers that come in here. Somebody asked that this past Wednesday night. Man, if the doors are open, what happens when somebody who's never set foot in this church steps foot in this church? Number one, we should be praying for that to happen. And we should be praying that if we see someone we've never seen before, I'm not saying we can't shake hands or give hugs, but you should make every effort to reach out to them. And say, hey, I don't know you. I've never seen you before. I'm just really glad you're here. Thank you for being here. Maybe you can get their phone number and make contact with them and encourage them. Maybe you can share the gospel with them. What is your plan to offer hospitality when we get here? And I remind you that when we offer hospitality, it should be an overflow of the grace of God in our lives. We don't need to show up here ready to grumble. Well, there are too many people coming in my door. I don't get anybody. I don't know. It's not about us, church. It's about our ability to show others the love of Christ by how we reach out and minister to them by offering them hospitality. Peter said it best. The end of all things are near. Therefore, this is what we need to be doing. We can't just sit here and be like, man, I, I can't wait for it to get here. I'm ready for this thing to be over. We all are. 
But what are we doing to be prepared for when the end of all things actually arrives and they yell, go? What are we ready to do, church? Are we praying now? Are we practicing the art of loving one another? Are we offering hospitality? Are we preparing, allowing God to prepare our hearts to do these things for our church family, not just now, but when we do gather? Or are we just preparing for when we gather that we're not practicing it now? Church, the end of all things is near. The end is near. And that's in the immediate context that hopefully soon we'll be able to gather again, but it's also in a bigger context that hopefully soon we'll all be with Jesus. What are we doing now to be obedient in living out his call and plan for our lives? How are we being biblically obedient to that so that God will be glorified most through our service? Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for today. I thank you so much for our church family. And God, I thank you so much for keeping us safe during this time uh, of being separated. God, there are many families in our church that are dealing with some hard and heavy things. And Father, we lift them up to you. Whether it is a sickness, whether it is one of our church family members that is dealing with the loss of a family member during this time, or, or, or families dealing with unemployment or a loss of a job, families that are dealing with hard jobs that are, that are very difficult and challenging. God, whatever it is, I'm so thankful that you are a faithful God who will not leave us that will not isolate yourself from us, but a God who is actively involved in every element and aspect of our lives. May we, your people, submit ourselves before you with the desire for you to be glorified in us. Father God, I thank you so much for speaking truth through your word by inspiring uh, Peter's hand as he wrote these things to remind us to pray for one another of how we are to be disciplined as we approach the privilege of prayer. God, how we have the unique opportunity to love each other deeply because love covers that multitude of sins just like your love covered ours. And God, we have the privilege to to offer hospitality right now in the context of our families and those in whom we share a house with. But God, there's going to be a day coming where we get the privilege of offering hospitalities and in doing so would introduce and encourage others in the love of Christ. Father God, will you Prick our hearts that we will be seeking your face and making a plan of our own to be obedient to who you are and how we answer that call in our lives. Father, raise up our church family to be a group of people that can be used by you to reach the lost and to encourage those who are saved. Be glorified in your church, Father. Be magnified in our obedience. And Father... If you can find a way, use our church to advance and build your kingdom. It's in these things we ask in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Church, thank you for your time. I love you and I miss you. And I look forward to the end of all these things so that we can be back together again soon. We'll talk to you then.